0: If you would stand with me to honor the word of the Lord. If nothing else is said today that's true or makes a lick of sense, it's all worth it to hear this. This is God's word. Even though, or yea, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask you now, by your Spirit, to help us to be present with your presence now through the Word and coming to us through the table that has been with us in the songs and the prayers. Help us to be here with you in this moment. We know, Father, that you want us to rest, so help us to rest. To not be in a hurry. Help us to hear the word you want us to hear. Give us ears to hear. Help us to be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Holy Spirit, we ask you to take this two-edged sword of your word and pierce it deep into the intentions, the desires, the thoughts of our hearts. We desperately need you to heal us, to help us, to show us what we don't see that we're blind to, and to bring us to the the glory and the power of Jesus and His good news, His kingdom, and we ask this in His name, amen. I didn't know how afraid of death I was again until recently. A few weeks ago, I, I was doing a training, and I... I decided when I was training, instead of spending the money that it takes to have a hotel room, that I would camp for four nights, which it turned out to be a great experience other than one little part. And so I, every night, the weather's just beautiful. I'm not good at doing pictures, although I do have one we might use earlier. But just imagine my tent, this idyllic setting of trees, of fire, the, the, the water. It was just wonderful. And every night, every day I would go to class, and I would come back at night, and you know, just to this, you know, it's, it's just dusk or whatever. That's the night part, right? Dawn's morning. All right, yeah. It's dusk over the water. I'd get my stuff and I'd walk up to the, to the public bathroom to take a shower. And everything was great until Wednesday night. And I walk in there and I go in to take my shower. And there's a guy in there, which is not abnormal, right? It's a public place. There's lots of people camping. But he's cleaning himself by the sink. And he looks up at me and he goes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I, I, I just made a mess. I'm cleaning up, I'm sorry. And I'm like, okay, I don't mind. I'm just walking back here to take my shower. I walk back there, you know, do my thing. I'm leaving and he looks at me again on the way out and he says, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry. And so I'm it's like, it's okay, right? It's just an anxious guy, right? Who maybe has some kind of, you know, anxious tick or whatever. And uh, I don't think anything of it. I walk back to my campsite now, I'm not able to park my truck in the campsite because the gates don't open until like 7.30 in the morning, and I have to leave earlier than that to make it to my class. And so I have to walk quite a ways back to my campsite. And, and, but truck's out here. This will be important in a minute. I'm, I lay, I've got a little fire going. I lay down in my tent to go to sleep, and I lay there for about 15, 20 minutes. It's, you know, it's super dark by now. And I'm about to go to sleep, and all of a sudden I hear, And I'm like, what in the world? I'm like, I'm not responding, <laughs> you know? Hey, and finally I'm like, I'm gonna have to do something. I guess he knows I'm in here. And so I kind of look up and people have already thought I was crazy for going camping out here by myself, but anyway. And, you know, there's the, the road of the campground and then there's the lower road that you drive and park that's near your campsite. Well, I look up and dude in the bathroom is on the lower road. And he's like, hey. And I'm like, yeah? He's like, that's a nice fire you got there. I'm not exaggerating. I know preachers do that. I'm keeping this one true. <laughs> I can't claim that for the rest today, but this one. Uh, I'm just a joke. Uh. And he, I'm like, yeah, and he goes, do you know if they've been spraying for bugs? I'm like, I don't know. And every time after he says something, he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And you're thinking, are you apologizing for something you're about to do to me? I'm <laughs> super confused right now. And then he's like, do, do, Have the flies been bad? And I'm just like, I. I've not noticed any flies. I'm not worried, thinking about flies right now. And, and he just stands there. And again, I'm sorry. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go back to sleep. And yeah, right. Yes. And I lay down. And I, I'm just laying there. Oh, Lord, please. My truck's not there. I can't, like, get up and make a fast exit. You know, I'd have to walk, like, a four, quarter of a mile and so I've got this little chair that fits inside my tent, and this is what I do. This is super protection. I just put it in front of the door, and so in case he comes in, at least I guess I've got a moment to just start swinging like crazy. I was afraid. (laughs) I didn't know what to do. I hadn't been afraid like that in a long time. I didn't know how afraid of death that I was, and what I want to propose to us this morning is maybe you don't either. The Bible tells us through the whole story about this powerful pull of the fear of death. And whether we know it or not, it's like an undertow in our souls, in our stories, in our lives, that can pull us into a sea of anxiety that sometimes we feel or it can keep us bound in this background noise of our lives that we may at some point just don't even acknowledge anymore, but there's just this unrelenting pull of fear. And the world, the flesh, and the devil, and this category of, of, of being, of, 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 of things in the Scriptures called the principalities and the powers, they feed off of this fear. They feed off of And it's like in all of our lives, we're hearing this. Hey. Hey. Remember, I'm right here. Remember, you're not safe. Remember, right now, anything could happen to you or to those you love. And if you're like me, can just attack you out of the blue sometimes. Or it can be there almost as if in your blood. Try and sleep now. What about those green pastures? What about those still waters? You are going to be left lacking. If not now, the day is coming. Death is coming. And we know the answer to this in our heads, right? But I wonder how deep we feel it right now in our spirit. We know the good news of Jesus, primarily the good news of His resurrection, that because Jesus is risen from the dead, we don't need to fear death at the end because death will lead us into His everlasting glory. But I wonder how much we feel free from the slavery of the fear of death now. And I wonder if we dare to believe and dare to envision what it would look like for us to live into this reality that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. To believe what we've read in Hebrews already in our word of assurance today, and what we're going to read again before we finish our time, that Jesus has delivered us from slavery, not just to death. It's not what it said. But from slavery to the fear of death the word of God says we can grow in this that we can claim the gift of a life free from the slavery of the fear of death and all of its enslaving anxieties and idolatries how do we do this We've got to join the psalmist. We've got to join David again as we are doing each week and acknowledge the real fear of death we have in our lives. And maybe for some of us, I would say for all of us in some ways, the slavery of the fear of death. Notice verse 4 again. He is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. So David's setting has shifted. Last week, the shepherd is leading him where? Green pastures. Still waters. Restoring the soul, paths of righteousness, right paths. The setting shifts, and now instead of the shepherd having the sheep in those in that setting, now he has him in the valley of, of deep darkness. It's set, we're used to valley of the shadow of death. That still works, but some of you even have in your Bibles, you'll you'll know the little bitty squiggly letter that says go down here and look. And really, the, you could more literally translate this from the Hebrew into deep darkness, like the. It's like a superlative that's piling on stuff. The shadowy depths. The deep, darkest valley. In these ancient Near Eastern locations, these sheep, sometimes eating green, but a lot of times they're being lit, led through these wilderness areas. It's just not all green. It's not even a lot of green if you go and do your little Bible map work, right? It's desert, it's wilderness, it's caves. It's darkness. Readers of this psalm would remember that this is a literal darkness. Again, the wilderness, the wadis for David, the Goliaths, the Sauls. For us, literally, it can be times where we face sickness, disease, cancers, mental health crises. And it can be figurative. In Psalm 107, we don't have time to go there, it talks of literal darknesses that we go through. In Psalm 88, the psalmist says, "...darkness is my only friend." Anxieties, seeing yourself as nothing. One commentator says it this way, "...this phrase can apply to death itself, but it's meant to speak of any dark situation where you cannot see your way. A sickbed can be the valley of the shadow of death. A broken heart can be the valley of the shadow of death." Divorce court can be the valley of the shadow of death. An unmet need can be the valley of the shadow of death. Unemployment can be the valley of the shadow of death. The death of a loved one can be the valley of the shadow of death. The loss of your reputation can be the valley of the shadow of death. There are a lot of valleys of darkness that we face in this world. And if that's not bad enough, then it can go to weird imagination places. And I don't mean weird in a bad way. I don't can't tell you how many times in my life I've thought. I wonder if I have cancer right now. Maybe I'm the only one. I wonder if this person I love might not live this much longer. I have I have some friends, nobody in this room, so I'm not talking about you, but some family members who are very worried about gas station abductions of their children. Right? It's a real thing, right? And so every time they go to get gas, that's on their mind. Right? It's pretty unlikely. Right? It's pretty unlikely. Maybe I have cancer right now. But we do these things, don't we? And they become these dark places that we live our lives ...captive by fear, and we have to ask ourselves the question... ...does Psalm 23 verses 1 through 3 still stand in in verse 4? David here, through the Spirit, has put these things together. This is not only, though, a setting of trial, it's a setting of temptation. Your suffering is not a sin, right? It's, It's not a sin to suffer... But suffering can tempt us to sin. Death, disease, the curse. It's not like you're responsible for that in a moral, sinful way, but it certainly tempts us. In the fear of death, we want to survive. And sometimes our surviving looks like sinning. It can lead to all those M's that we talked about last week. If you you weren't here, we talked about when we feel like we lack, how we're tempted to to, to manage things sinfully, to to manipulate things sinfully, to to medicate sinfully, to to, uh, be mean sinfully. There's a whole bunch of them we went through. You see, death, the fear of death, produces sin in our life. We could even ask ourselves, and some theologians debate this in the history of the church, what came first, death or sin? Or, if you're like, well, it's very clear they sinned, and then death was the penalty of sin. Well, what about after Adam and Eve, what comes first, death or sin? That's a, that's a hard question if you go really look at all the passages. Even Romans 5, right? Death came into the world through sin, and now we not only share in that original sin, but there's this ancestral component of the fear of death that comes into our lives. This might sound crude, and this might be wrong, and I think I heard it somewhere else, so blame it on somebody else. If you gave your baby a gun, what is that baby going to do when you don't give it what it wants? (laughs) Just think about that. There's this primordial fear of survival in us. And we need deliverance. We need deliverance. If that was not bad enough, it's going to get better right now. Not a movie recommendation. Back in 2004 or 2005, I went to my friend's house one night and we were going to watch a movie early on in Cassie and I's marriage and we watched Napoleon Dynamite. It was great, right? I don't know if you like it. I still think it's one of the great movies. What I was not ready for was the next movie that they turned on that I bear no responsibility for and did not, did not know what I was getting myself into. And it was a nice little uplifting movie called Saul. And uh, don't, don't go watch it. Don't go Google it. This will be enough. Uh, basically, people are put in situations where they're, deathly afraid to see how they're going to react. There's these traps that are set. Basically, I have your family held hostage, and I will kill you, I will kill your family if you don't kill this other person in the room with you. Why am I saying this? I don't know, other than I think it's the best example I can think of to show you this. That sounds outlandish, far-fetched, and crazy, but I really believe that's the situation we can feel like we're in in our lives a lot. if I don't defend myself, if I don't take what I need, if I don't believe what we talked about last week, I shall not lack. If that's hard enough to do last week, it's, that's really hard to believe and live out of when you're in the valley of deep darkness. Because those survival instincts kick in and all of a sudden, it's about me, myself, and I, and my family, and nobody else matters. And nothing else matters. This is, this is where spiritual warfare is happening against the greatest commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When you're in that deep, dark valley, again, it ain't your fault. You're not sinful because you're in it. But when you get in it, it's as if, no way. I'm just taking care of me. How's that working for us? It is not a peaceful, restful life. It is a life bound by slavery at the bottom of it all, to the fear of death. And we got to, we've got to acknowledge this. You can't do all that acknowledging right now. It's more than right now. You've got to take this with you this week. Where do I find myself in fear that I, in the hardest times that, I'm, that God is going to leave me lacking? And then how do I respond in those times? What does maybe selfishness look like? What does my sin look like? What does my anxiety look like? You know, certain theologians or psychologists have thought about this anxiety in two different categories. One is basic anxiety like food, clothing, and shelter. So you know, in some parts of the world, not ours, but really in some parts even of our neighborhood, that's still a real issue, right? Food, clothing, and shelter. You know what people fight wars over in the history of the world? Food, clothing, and shelter—resources, right? What I don't know how to pronounce it. Catan, Catan. I don't know. Right? We play these games, right? There's resources, and if you look back in the history of the world, it's like who can? We need more land so we can have more food. So, so this can seem foreign to us in our affluent North American culture. But what we don't, we, while we might not have basic anxiety, we have a whole lot of this other category that's called neurotic anxiety. And that is, I'm afraid that my life won't really count. I need significance. I need status. I need to leave a legacy. I need to make sure that my children have these things better than I have we're anxious about that, very anxious, and it drives us. One writer says, unlike basic anxiety, neurotic anxiety isn't about environmental threats and resources, rather it's characterized by worries, fears, and apprehensions associated with our self-concept, much of which is driven by how we compare ourselves to others in our social world. I've got to have as much as them, I've got to do as much as them, so like my life will count, so my life will matter. Because one day I'm going to die, and I've got to, to live a life that justifies it was worth it. Right? I'm driven by the fear of death. feeling. I'm going to go back to reading. Feelings of insecurity, low self-esteem, obsession, obsessions, perfectionism, ambitiousness, envy, narcissism. Jealousy, rivalry, competitiveness, self-consciousness, guilt and shame are all examples of this neurotic anxiety, and they all relate to how we evaluate ourselves in our own eyes and the eyes of others. Can also be feelings of superiority, contempt, and pride. But the motive force behind our vigilant monitoring of how we compare ourselves to others and its cultural standards for good and ill is a slavery to the fear of death that manifests itself in an anxiety that determines how we form our identities and how we pursue meaning. You guys know uh, the series is born out of this time that I took during my sabbatical. And this was one of the things I meditated on a lot. It's this anxiety around... Would my life really count if, if this church didn't work out? Would my life really count if certain people didn't like me? Does my life really count if certain people leave? Well, my life really matter? So this morning I'm praying over this, and, it, and it's as if the Holy Spirit's wanting to say, Are you preparing sermons? And are you going to go preach sermons driven by this death anxiety? You've got to make yourself matter, Rusty, by preaching a sermon people will really like. And this is not saying don't work hard and don't have ambition. It's the motivation, right? Is this driven by an anxiety to make my life count and matter so that when I die at the end it will be said, His life was worthy. This this fear of death leads to all types of enslaved thinking and living. It leads to those classic Fs we talk about all the time, the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, if that helps you. right? When you're under pressure, I'm going to die. right? Some of you are fighters, and some of you are runners, you fleeers, Some of you freeze up. And then I like this one, I heard somebody say, and some of you are fawners, which means you just go into people-pleasing mode, right? You fawn over people. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I will not fear that my identity comes through what I own, what I do, or what other people think of me. Henry Nowen summarizes that that's really the three temptations that the devil came to Jesus with in the wilderness. wish I could unpack that more right now, but basically, God's not going to give you these things. You will lack. So, you have to live driven by an anxiety that your identity is formed by what you own, what you do, and what other people think of you. And the whole marketing system of the United States that we live in is based on us living into this fear. Spiritual warfare is real. And the principalities and the powers want us to live in bondage to the slavery of the fear of death, though we are the free sons and daughters of God. We've got to hear another voice than the hay of the enemy, though. So we not only acknowledge the places in our lives where we are living in slavery to the fear of death, but we've got to attend or apprehend to the presence of God in the valley of deep darkness in the valley of the fear of death what does david know david says even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil for you are with me now david notice here david doesn't deny evil there's some religious systems that say the way that we live in this evil world is we just have to say there's not such a thing as evil right and we just kind of meditate ourselves out of it but we know that that's not true by our experience and and just by a little life. There's evil. David doesn't say the way out of this is denial or the way out of this is some sort of unholy form of detachment. We may get to a holy form of it later, but not an unholy form that just denies it, distracts from it, numbs it. No, there's really unsafe things in the shadows of the valley. Literally in this time. You can go read in 1 Samuel 17. David talks about how, as a shepherd, he had to fight off wolves, he had to fight off bears, and he had to fight off lions. There is real evil in the shadows. We are not here to engage in some sort of power of positive thinking, saying nothing bad is going to happen. Bad things happen. There are evil people in this world and evil things going on all around us. The valley of the shadow of death is real, but David can say, I will fear no evil. David is telling the truth about his fear, but somehow instead of going to anxiety and control and all of those ilms that we talked about, manipulation, management, medication, being mean, whatever the one is that suits you best... Instead, he has faith. How can he do this without denial or unholy detachment? These words that don't look like a lot, but are everything. For you are with me. Let me suggest here that presence is both the problem and the solution. First off, presence is the problem in the valley of the shadow of death because there's a presence of evil stuff. Right? The problem. But presence is also the solution because there's a power of someone greater. The presence, that is, of someone greater. Now this doesn't happen simply by me saying it. Right? This is what we've been talking about every week in this series. We need to memorize Psalm 23, but we need to also meditate on Psalm 23, and then we've got to integrate, participate in Psalm 23. If you remember back to the first week, the Lord is, and the Lord is mine. So how can David say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Who is you? Remember, we're back to the Lord is. He has, there, there, is, there is a God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the personal God of Israel, who is eternal, who is historical, who is metaphysical. That is, He is real. He is objective. He's outside of David. This is so important. There is the objective presence of the Lord. He is with me. Hang on to that. And then there's second part of this is there is the temporal, the we might say narratival, not just eternal, but, but story-formed, personal, subjective presence of the Lord. That is the, the presence of the Lord that you can feel and experience and know is there. If you're like me, whenever anybody says, especially when I was a kid, they pray that the Lord would be with me, I'm like, why are you praying that? I, he is. Right? Maybe you aren't smart Alex like I am. But what people mean by that is not just the Lord be with you, but the Lord be with you. The Scriptures speak of the manifest presence of the Lord. Did God just appear in the tabernacle, in the temple? Was He like not already there? No, He was there, and then He was there. We got to have both of these. Got to have both of these realities in our minds. We may not, we might not always experience the part two, but we can always cling to the part one. David is a moody guy. I mean, my goodness, read these Psalms. He's all over the place, right? If he had the good old school mood ring, that thing would just be going crazy. But his moods didn't change reality. It might be a literal valley, it might just be a I'm having a horrible day valley. But the Lord is with him. Our seasons, our sufferings, and even David saying, even when that shadow of death comes over me. You know, David had a baby die because of his sin. David had a son betray him because of his sin, or a link to it. But the Lord was his shepherd. But David is seeking number two because he knows how good number one is. And I don't think that we should see that as a weakness or something wrong. A lot of us are coming from traditions that are big on number one or big on number two. But what if we could rest in number one and reach for number two? Reach for it. Here's your fancy five-dollar word. Effective salience. And here's what that means. It's it's the, the felt importance or the felt relevancy of a truth. It's, it's, it's not just that we know it, right, on the paper. And, and This is what makes or breaks our relationship with God. Early on in the time of sabbatical, right at the beginning, Val and I went to this uh, retreat, and, and they had us draw a picture of, of God, and then draw a picture of how you experience Him. Now, God's a spirit, right? Hopefully none of y'all think we're breaking the second commandment. Trust me, I've waded through that argument a thousand times, but so be it if you want to have it again. But anyway, the way that we think about how God is can be very different than the way that we actually feel that He is. And we might even say sanctification is when those things, they just keep our felt effective salience, our felt importance and relevancy is getting closer and closer to the reality of who He is while at the same time we don't want to be people who are addicted to experience. Who can't rest in the reality that I might not feel anything and I don't have to try to make something happen. I don't have to conjure up something. I don't need Melanie to hit that minor chord at just the right time. You know, like, like he's here. What would be a word to describe this experience? Freedom. Freedom from fear. Because when the one who loves is known, felt as the love that he is, we say with John that perfect love casts out all fear. I've shared before about how my, my son Elisha on some of his hunting trips is... When he was younger, he was afraid. He's not afraid anymore. He'll walk out into the deep, darkest woods you could find all by himself and come back with a, a giant deer or three. He's, he's amazing doing that stuff. So I'm not going to tell you that story, but I've started you before. Is he does, the reason he's able to do that when he was little is because even though he was afraid of the dark at home, when he's walking into the woods with Grandpa, he's not afraid, right? Because there's the presence, right? There's a bigger presence. Presence is the problem, the presence of what's in the dark, presence is the solution, the presence of the one who's with me. So I'm not going to tell you that again. Or maybe I just did. But I had grandpas too. So I had two grandpas. Papa Frank, Papa Willard. And my wife would not let me name my children that. That's unrelated, but I'm sad. But anyway. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to get to Josiah's middle name in a minute, because... I was able to do one worse, not worse, but better, Josiah, better. So I had some, I had some hard days in elementary school. I think I've shared that with you guys. Surprise, surprise! I wasn't the coolest guy in the world. wasn't very good at sports. Excluded all this stuff. I had this thing where I would just people could make me throw up because I had this like very quick gag reflex deal or whatever. And, you know, I was the kid who had to take an extra change of clothes to school, right? That's super cool, right, With teachers like, do you want me to put your extra underwear over here? All right, so that was me. But, but my Pawpaw Frank picked me up from school. He was just a peaceful presence. And we would go to the drugstore. And then we would go to the service station. And y'all are thinking, how old are you? Okay, boomer. Uh, but we did, right, in our small town. And he would let me get those orange peanut butter crackers and a bottle of Coke. And if we were super cool, we'd pour our peanuts in our, in our Coke glass Coke bottle. It was just like, everything's okay now. I'm not in that shadow anymore. And then I had another grandpa, Paul Willard. He was a big, big, tall man who... Just worked in the garden all the time and he played a guitar except so he played it left-handed but not with the strings changed He just flipped it upside down so I could not never learn anything from him because his fingers are all weird And he was just full of energy and life when my mama would make a chocolate pie She made a chocolate pie for everybody else and then she would just sit a whole one down right in front of him And he would just grab it. He'd hold his spoon not the proper way, but like with a fist And he if y'all saw me eat here we go So, and he would just shovel in, and he would just, you just sit there, and he'd be like, man, this guy's awesome. (laughs) Awesome. And when I was young, my dad was in the army for a couple years, and I I think this is what happened. I think sometimes my parents listen to this stuff. Maybe I'm not telling this right, parents. I'm doing the best I can. I think my dad was in the army at that time. Uh, I broke my arm. I fell off the counter in the kitchen trying to fix myself some popcorn, and... I was scared to death. And so what does my mom do? My my Papa Wheeler just lived across the pasture. She picks me up, takes me to Papa Willard, big presence, and I'm still hurting, but everything's under control. Right? It's okay. I love you, Papa Frank and Papa Wheeler. There's a presence right in the shadow of death. I've got this picture. You probably can't see it good. And I don't know if this is cheesy. I'm not art, a super art-knowing person. Or language person, obviously. <laughs> but, uh, but I like it. This comes from a, a Barbara Peacock book called Soul Care, in African-American Tradition or something. And this, if you want to go find a, a real version of it. But just notice that That lamb. Right, just resting with Jesus, and you can notice a lot of other things about that. Just leave it there, Kaylee. I'm gonna keep talking, but there we are, right? I'm reminded of Psalm 139, where it says, "The darkness is not dark to you." I'm reminded of a song we'd sing with my mama: "God walks the dark hills." To grow in this psalm, we've got to learn to apprehend His presence in the valley. Not denial, but we've got to say with Moses in Exodus thirty-three fifteen, 15, when he's being led in this exodus, and he's taking his people, and he says, we, I don't want to go if the presence of God doesn't go with me. Because he knew he was weak, right? He had tried doing the whole life without the presence of God thing, and he ends up spending 40 years wandering in the desert himself, and now he's like, I don't, I don't want to do that again, although, get ready, Moses, but he says, I don't want to go without your presence. We've got to say that as individuals. We've got to say that as missional communities, right? Like, all the plans, all the, all the visions for, our, for ourselves, for our families at home, for whatever... It's nothing without the presence of God. He's the only one who can comfort us. He's the only one that can help us. He is the only one who can deliver us from the slavery to the fear of death, to that I've got to make my life count. In the presence of God, wars stop. In the presence of God, wars in our hearts stop when we can apprehend that He is enough, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack even in the valley of the shadow of death. So how do we grow in this? We've got to grow in the objective part and the subjective part. That is, we need to care about... What we believe and why we believe it. Theology matters. And if you don't like that word, doctrine, if you don't like that word, knowing stuff about God. But we need to read it for presence. B.B. Warfield says, You want to read the book of theology? Read it on your knees. Read it on your knees. Know things that are true no matter how you feel that you can hold on to when you go through that darkness. It's why it may sound self-serving. It's why we gather to hear the preaching, the teaching of God's Word, so that we can hear that which is true. It's why we will come and partake of the Lord's table, and why we do it every week. So no matter how you feel... Or what you're going through, you can taste and see that the Lord is good, that your whole self can be reminded that there is no condemnation, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then we need to, and this will make some of us uncomfortable, but the the things we've been talking about, we need to step into some practices that are going to help us more subjectively experience the presence of God. You've got to be willing, at least in your prayer, to say, God, I know this is true. I want to feel this is true. That's not a weakness. Lord, I want Your manifest presence on my life today. I want it in my family. I want it in my kids. I want it in my fight club. I want it in my missional community. I don't want to go forward without You going with me. I know You're going to go with me, but I want to know it. You may just need to sit and take some time to apprehend that He is really with you. and You need to do that over and over and over again until what you think you know, you actually begin to know. You might just want to set a chair. Your prayer time might just become two chairs, right? It might sound silly to you, but you're just going to set another chair out when you pray. You're going to be aware He is there. You might want to light a candle. You might want to go for a walk. That's what I like to do. And you just want to imagine. He's walking with me. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But I am not alone. And we want to do this communally. In our fight clubs. In our missional communities. We, we, whatever we're doing. Whenever we're doing it. With our, with our children. With our, with our roommates. With our sweet mates. How do we take a moment just to say, let's call time out and acknowledge the presence of the Lord that's with us? What difference might it make if we were aware of the presence of God? It would mean that we could live a little bit more into the reality that we are not slaves to fear the fear of death. So the last thing, each week, you know, we proclaim the gospel as clearly as we can at this point. And I... Go for it. We'll go to the table. Hang with me. We not only need to acknowledge the slavery we have to the fear of death in these areas of our life and apprehend the presence of God in the face of them, but we've got to anchor ourselves in the power of the shepherd. Now where do I see this? And Go back to to the verse, Kaylee, please. Thank you. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Presence without power really isn't enough. It really isn't. If the shepherd is just going to get destroyed by the, the enemies, then guess what? I'm going down too, right? It don't matter how nice he is or how kind he is, right? Lovey-dovey shepherd. If he gets mauled by the bear and dies, we're all dead. So this shepherd has a rod and a staff. a rod. Some people would think it's more like this club-like thing. So think of a stick with like that gnarly end on it. And so he can just just drill any enemies that come up. And then the staff, the staff would be the classic thing you think of that has this curve in it. And guess what that curve is called? It's called a crook. It's called a crook. And he would use this rod and he would use this staff with this crook and he would protect the sheep. He would fight off the enemies. He would direct the sheep, right? Whoa, you're getting scared. What are we doing? We're scared. Fight, flight, freeze, fawn. right? Here goes little sheep. You know this way. We're talking about Hannah drawing pictures of all the various sheep acts we do, right? Here goes this sheep, right? He gets scared. He's running like deeper in the darkness, right? We want to make fun of that sheep, but we often are that sheep. Well, here comes shepherd's staff with the crook, right? Bringing you on back. Right? Or maybe they're all getting nervous and getting jittery, and he's just reaching out, and he's just kind of keeping on going. Let's, let's stay focused here, guys. I got your back. There's direction, there's protection, and then there's also correction. But the correction is for the sake of protection and direction. right? It's not like I'm just beating the heck out of you guys because i got to get the job done. No, it's a good shepherd. And this is why he can say, these things comfort me. This might have been comforting in your flannel graph Sunday school experience, but these instruments, a rod and a staff, would not historically have been comforting instruments in the sense of making you feel sweet, nice, sentimental things. A shepherd in the ancient Near East was much less like Mr. Rogers and much more like Clint Eastwood. He was the guy who was going to take care of business. There's comfort. say so much more, but I want to get back to grandpa's. My Pawpaw Frank died when I was in high school. And it was a shock. He had a heart attack. And just earlier that day, he was laying in our house on the couch in his peaceful presence. Probably, if it was in the afternoon, watching the Cubs. If it was the evening, watching the Braves. But before that night was over, we'd rush to his house and I'd see him being pushed out on that stretcher and not talk to him again. My Papa Willard died when I was in college. It's Bible school like some of you. He had had lung cancer. And that powerful, big presence that we had to watch just be wither, wither away to this Thin version of a man that you wouldn't have known him. That we love so much. The peace, the power was not enough to face death. We need somebody who has presence and power in the face of death. Death is coming. It is appointed for a man once to die and then judgment. And know oh, how our imaginations go wild in fear of when and how that will come to ourselves and to those we love and how that anxiety drives us to live our lives. It's probably driving you in ways you don't even know to make decisions about what jobs you take, about what majors you get, about what things you do with your life, about how you spend your time, about how you spend your money, right? I got to make my life count. Now go with me to Calvary. And there are the disciples. Watch the one who gave them presents die. Now that's disorienting. Jesus, you said, let not your hearts be troubled. Most of them have ran. It's, it, it, this is here like in many places in church history, past and present, where the women are the most courageous, right? Because other than John, they're the only ones still showing up. The rest are like, I can't deal with this. I just gave three years of my life to you, dude, and you died on me? Slavery to the fear of death. But what they didn't realize was what was happening, and what we can realize is in his death, Jesus was becoming present with us in our death. And in his death, Jesus was giving us freedom from the slavery of the power of death. He was becoming injected with death for us. Now we rightly say and accept that He was taking on the penalty of sin so that God might condemn sin in Him instead of in us, Romans 8, 1-4. But what we might miss sometimes is that He was also taking upon Himself the curse. The curse of death and the reality of evil. I want to stop, but this is just too important. On the cross... Jesus was injected with our death to the depths. If you can do this with me and you don't feel too uncomfortable, you could go there in your mind's eye. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says that through his preaching, the Galatians saw Jesus as if publicly crucified in their midst. But we can see Jesus there not only being nailed to that cross and that cruel way of death in the Roman empire, but we can see Jesus as the cancer patient taking chemo. We can see Jesus as the baby found dead in the crib of SIDS. We can see Jesus as the teenager mangled in the cab of a car due to a DUI. We can see Jesus as the addict in the ditch who overdosed, but everybody was too afraid to call anybody, and so they just left him there for dead. We can see Jesus in the place of those abused in all the worst ways and left to live with that shame. We can see Jesus feeling forsaken. We can see Jesus infected with all the evil of the world. If you think that's too much, then hear these words. I'm going to flip to them so you know I'm reading them. These are not my words. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming cursed for us. 2 Corinthians 5:21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And then we've already read Hebrews 2 today. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Jesus goes into death for us. He goes into death with us. But the good news is... He didn't stay dead. This, this is a this is gospel, right? At least one big piece of it. He was injected with our death. And what, what do we get injected with? His life. He takes on the curse. And we take on the resurrection. His rod and His staff, they comfort us. And I can't help but think of the cross as this, this crook, staff, with this rod across it as a sign, as a symbol, that evil may come against us, but evil will never overtake us. We may die, but as Jesus said, they may kill you, but not a hair on your head shall perish. How does that make sense? Because Jesus was crucified and risen. Death has been put to death, He has been given the keys. And so this is why in one sense we come to the Lord's Supper every week. To remember. To participate. Death doesn't win. We raise the cup. He died for us. His body was given for us. His blood was given for us. This is why we sing. Someone has said singing is the exorcism of fear. We sing. Our victory. We sup our victory. We scripture our victory. We pray our victory. So that when the enemy comes and says, Hey, you know I'm out here. We hear the voice of the shepherd. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I hold the keys of death, hell, and the grave. Father, we thank you for the good news the gospel. Forgiveness, deliverance, healing. And we pray now as we come to the table that you would help us to receive it again. May we know it deep in our hearts. May we share it with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.